Chapter Twenty One of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One Impetus from the West. My heart almost stands still. I hope against hope, but still I hope. Susan wrote in her diary in eighteen eighty five as she waited for news from Oregon Territory regarding the vote of the people on a woman's suffrage amendment. Woman's suffrage was defeated in Oregon, and in Washington Territory, where in 1883 it had carried, a contest was being waged in the courts to invalidate it. In Nebraska, it had also been defeated in 1882. Since the victories in Wyoming and Utah in 1869 and 1870, not another state or territory had written woman's suffrage into law. In spite of these setbacks, Susan still saw great promise in the West and resumed her lecturing there. She knew the rapidly growing young Western states and territories as few Easterners did, and she understood their people. Here, women were making themselves indispensable as teachers, and state universities, now open to them, graduated over 2,000 women a year. The Farmers' Alliance, the Grange, and the Prohibition Party, all distinctly Western in origin, admitted women to membership and were friendly to women's suffrage school suffrage had been won in twelve western states as against five in the east and kansas women were now voting in municipal elections in a sense women's suffrage was becoming respectable in the west and a woman was no longer ostracized by her friends for working with susan b anthony still critical of her own speaking Susan was often discouraged over her lectures, but her vitality, her naturalness, and her flashes of wit seldom failed to win over her audiences. Her nephew, Daniel Jr., a student at the University of Michigan, hearing her speak, wrote his parents, At the beginning of her lecture, Aunt Susan does not do so well but when she is in the midst of her argument and all her energies brought into play, I think she is a very powerful speaker. On these trips through the West, she kept in close touch with her brothers Daniel and Merritt in Kansas, frequently visiting in their homes and taking her numerous nieces to Rochester. She valued Daniel's judgment highly, and he, well-to-do and influential, was a great help to her in many ways, investing her savings and furnishing her with railroad passes which greatly reduced her ever-increasing traveling expenses. Everywhere she met active, zealous members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Since the Civil War, temperance had become a vigorous movement in the Middle West, doing its utmost to counteract the influence of the many large new breweries and saloons. Through the Prohibition Party, organized on a national basis in 1872, temperance was now a political issue in Kansas, Iowa, and the territory of Dakota, and through the WCTU, 
women waged an effective total abstinence campaign. Brought into the suffrage movement by Francis Willard under the slogan, For God and Home and Country, these women quickly sensed the value of their votes to the temperance cause. Nor was Susan slow to recognize their importance to her and her work, for they represented an entirely new group, churchwomen, who heretofore had been suspicious of and hostile toward women's rights. Through them she anticipated a powerful impetus for her cause. With admiration she had watched Frances Willard's career. This vivid, consecrated young woman was a born leader, quick to understand women's need of the vote, and eager to lead women forward. It was a disappointment, however, when she joined the American rather than the National Woman Suffrage Association. The reasons for this, Susan readily understood, were Frances Willard's warm friendship with Mary Livermore, and her own preference for the American's state-by-state -state method similar to that she had so successfully followed in her WCTU. Yet Frances Willard, whenever she could, cooperated with Susan, whom she admired and loved, and through the years these two great leaders valued and respected each other, even though they frequently differed over policy and method. Susan, for example, was often troubled, because women's suffrage and temperance were more and more linked together in the public mind, thus confusing the issues and arousing the hostility of those who might have been friendly toward women's suffrage had they not feared that women's votes would bring in prohibition. She did her best to make it clear to her audiences that she did not ask for the ballot in order that women might vote against saloons and for prohibition. She demanded only that women have the same right as men to express their opinions at the polls. Such an attitude was hard for many temperance women to understand and to forgive. Over women's support of specific political parties, Susan and Frances Willard were never able to agree. Susan had never been willing to ally herself with a minority party. Therefore, to Frances Willard's disappointment, she withheld her support from the Prohibition Party in 1880, although their platform acknowledged women's need of the ballot and directed them to use it to settle the liquor question, and in 1884 when they recommended state suffrage for women. Finding women eager to support the prohibitionists in gratitude for these inadequate planks, Susan even issued a statement urging them to support the Republicans, who held out the most hope to them, even if women's suffrage had not been mentioned in their platform. Her experience in Washington had proved to her the friendliness and loyalty of individual Republicans and she was unwilling to jeopardize their support. Her judgment was confirmed during the next few years when friendly Republicans spoke for women's suffrage in the Senate, and when in 1887 the women's suffrage amendment was debated and voted on in the Senate. In the Senate gallery, eagerly listening, Susan took notice 
that the sixteen votes cast for the amendment were those of Republicans. Still hoping to win Susan's endorsement of the Prohibition Party in 1888, Francis Willard asked her to outline what kind of plank would satisfy her. "'Do you mean so satisfy me?' Susan replied, "'that I would work and recommend to all women to work for the success of the third-party ticket? Not until a third party gets into power, which promises a larger percent of representatives on the floor of Congress, and in the several state legislatures who will speak and vote for women's enfranchisement, then does the Republican, shall I work for it? You see, as yet, there is not a single prohibitionist in Congress, while there are at least twenty Republicans on the floor of the United States Senate, besides fully one-half of the members of the House of Representatives who are in favor of women's suffrage. I do not propose to work for the defeat of the party, which thus far has furnished nearly every vote in that direction." Nor was she lured away when, in 1888, the Prohibition Party endorsed women's suffrage and granted Francis Willard the honor of addressing its convention and serving on the Resolutions Committee. The temperance issue also cropped up in the annual Washington Conventions of the National Women's Suffrage Association, preparations for which Susan now left to Rachel Foster may wright sewell a capable young recruit from indiana and jane spofford however she still supervised these conventions prodding and interfering in what she called her most andrew jackson-like manner she always returned to washington with excitement and pleasure and with the hope of some outstanding victory and the suite at the riggs house given her by generous Jane Spofford, was a delight after months of hard travel in the West. "'I shall come both ragged and dirty,' she wrote Mrs. Spofford in 1887. "'Though the apparel will be tattered and torn, the mind, the essence of me, is sound to the core. Please tell the little milliner to have a bonnet picked out for me, and get a dressmaker.' who will patch me together so that I shall be presentable. Open to all women, irrespective of race or creed, the National Women's Suffrage Association attracted fearless, independent, devoted members. They welcomed Mormon women into the fold, and when the bill to disfranchise Mormon women as a punishment for polygamy was before Congress in 1887, they did their utmost to help Mormon women retain the vote, but were defeated. They welcomed as well many temperance advocates. A few delegates, however, among them Mrs. Stanton, Mrs. Gage, and Mrs. Colby, scorned what they called the singing and praying temperance group, and protested that temperance and religion were getting too strong a hold on the organization. Abigail Dunaway from Oregon contended that suffragists should not join forces with temperance groups and blamed the defeat of women's suffrage in Oregon, Idaho, and Washington in 1887 
on men's fear that women would vote for prohibition. Often Susan was obliged to act as arbiter between the temperance and non-temperance groups. She did not underestimate the momentum which the well-organized WCTU had already given the suffrage cause, particularly in states where the National Association had only a few and scattered workers. She needed and wanted the help of these temperance women, and of Frances Willard's forceful and winning personality. She also saw the importance of breaking down with Frances Willard's aid the slow-yielding opposition of the church. Occasionally, enthusiastic workers undertook projects which to her seemed unwise. She told them frankly how she felt and left it at that but most of them had to learn by experience when belva lockwood one of her most able colleagues in washington accepted the nomination for president of the united states offered her by the women of california in eighteen eighty four and by the women of iowa in eighteen eighty eight through their equal rights party she did not lend her support or that of the national association but followed her consistent policy of no alignment with a minority party nevertheless she heartily believed in women's right and ability to hold the highest office in the land ever since her trip to europe in eighteen eighty three susan had been planning for an international gathering of women interest in this project was kept alive among european women by mrs stanton during her frequent visits with her daughter harriet in england and her son theodore in france it was susan however who put the machinery in motion through the national woman suffrage association and issued a call for an international conference in washington in march eighteen eighty eight to commemorate the fortieth anniversary of the first woman's rights convention ten thousand invitations were sent out to organizations of women in all parts of the world to professional business and reform groups as well as to those advocating political and civil rights for women and an ambitious program was prepared most of the work for the conference and the raising of thirteen thousand dollars to finance it fell upon the shoulders of susan rachel foster and may wright sewell but they also had the enthusiastic cooperation of frances willard who with her nationwide contacts was of inestimable value in arousing interest among the many and varied women's organizations and the labor groups Another happy development was Clara Colby's decision to publish her Woman's Tribune in Washington during the conference. Mrs. Colby's Tribune, established in Beatrice, Nebraska, in 1883, had since then met, in a measure, Susan's need for a paper for the National Association, and she welcomed its transfer to Washington women from all parts of the world assembled in albaugh's opera house in washington for the epoch-making international conference which opened on sunday march twenty fifth eighteen eighty eight with religious services conducted entirely by women 
as if to prove to the world that women in the pulpit were appropriate and adequate. Fifty-three national organizations sent representatives, and delegates came from England, France, Norway, Denmark, Finland, India, and Canada. Presiding over all sixteen sessions, Susan rejoiced over a record attendance. Her thoughts went back to the winter of 1854, when she and Ernestine Rose had held their first women's rights meetings in Washington, finding only a handful ready to listen. The intervening thirty-four years had worked wonders. Now women were willing to travel not only across the continent, but from Europe and Asia, to discuss and demand equal educational advantages equal opportunities for training in the professions and in business, equal pay for equal work, equal suffrage, and the same standard of morals for all. Aware of their responsibility to their countries, they asked for the tools, education, and the franchise to help solve the world's problems. They were listened to with interest and respect, and were received at the White House by President and Mrs. Cleveland. Through it all, a dynamic gray-haired woman in a black silk dress with a red shawl about her shoulders was without question the heroine of the occasion. This lady, observed the Baltimore Sun, daily grows upon all present. The woman suffragists love her, for her good works, the audience, for her brightness and wit, and the multitude of press representatives for her frank, plain, open, business-like way of doing everything connected with the council. Her word is the parliamentary law of the meeting. Whatever she says is done without murmur or dissent. A permanent international council of women to meet once every five years was organized with Millicent Garrett Fawcett of England as president, and a national council to meet every three years was formed as an affiliate with Frances Willard as president and Susan as vice president at large. Emphasizing education and social and moral reform, the International Council did not rank suffrage first, as Susan had hoped. Nevertheless, she was happy that an international movement of enterprising women was well on its way. They would learn by experience. Of all the favorable results of the International Council of Women, two were of special importance to Susan. Meeting Anna Howard Shaw, and overtures from Lucy Stone for a union of the National and American Women's Suffrage Associations. Prejudiced against Anna Howard Shaw, who had aligned herself with Mary Livermore and Lucy Stone, and who she assumed was a narrow Methodist minister, Susan was unprepared to find that the pleasing young woman in the pulpit on the first day of the conference, holding her audience spellbound with her oratory, was Anna Howard Shaw. Here was a warm personality, a crusader eager to right human wrongs, and above all, a matchless public speaker. Anna, too, had heard much criticism of Susan, and had formed a distorted opinion of her 
which was quickly dispelled as she watched her preside. They liked each other the moment they met. Anna Howard Shaw had grown up on the Michigan frontier. Her indomitable spirit and her eagerness for learning conquering the hardships and the limitations of her surroundings encouraged by mary livermore who by chance lectured in her little town she worked her way through albion college and boston university theological school from which she graduated in eighteen seventy eight she then served as the pastor of two cape cod churches but was refused ordination by the methodist episcopal church because of her sex eventually she was ordained by the methodist protestant church during her pastorate she studied medicine at boston university and because of her ability as a speaker was in demand as a lecturer for temperance and women's suffrage groups through the massachusetts women's suffrage association she met an inspiring group of reformers and their influence and that of francis willard in whose work she was intensely interested, led her to leave the ministry for active work in the temperance and women's suffrage movements. After several years as a lecturer and organizer for the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association, she was placed at the head of the franchise department of the WCTU. This was her work when she met Susan B. Anthony. The more Susan talked with Anna, the better she liked her, and the feeling was mutual. This wholesome woman of forty-one, with abundant vitality, unmarried and without pressing family ties to divert her, seemed particularly well fitted to assist Susan in the arduous campaigns which lay ahead. A natural orator, she could in a measure take the place of Mrs. Stanton, who could no longer undertake western tours before the international council adjourned susan had anna's promise that she would lecture for the national association one of susan's nieces lucy e anthony also felt drawn to anna after meeting her at the international council a warm friendship quickly developed and continued throughout their lives within a few years they were living together lucy serving as anna's secretary and planning her lecture tours and campaign trips educated in rochester through the help of her aunts susan and mary living in their home and loving them both lucy readily made their interests her own and devoted her life to the suffrage movement neither a public speaker nor a campaigner she put her executive ability to work and her tasks though less spectacular, were important, and freed both Susan and Anna from many details. Just as the International Council of Women had broken down Anna Howard Shaw's prejudice regarding Susan B. Anthony and her National Women's Suffrage Association, just so it clarified the opinions of the other young women, now aligning themselves with the cause admiring the leaders of both factions these young women saw no reason why the two groups should not work together in one large strong organization 
and this seemed increasingly important as they welcomed women from other countries to this first international conference unfamiliar with the personal antagonisms and the sincere differences in policy which had caused the separation after the civil war they did not understand the difficulties still in the way of union so strongly however did they press for a united front that the leaders of both groups felt themselves swept along toward that goal susan herself had long looked forward to the time when all suffragists would again work together but since the unsuccessful overtures of her group in eighteen seventy she had made no further efforts in that direction she was completely taken by surprise when in the fall of eighteen eighty seven the american association proposed that she and lucy stone confer regarding union the negotiations revived old arguments in the minds of zealous partisans and in the women's journal the women's tribune and elsewhere attempts were made to fasten the blame for the twenty-year-old rift upon this one and that one but so strong ran the tide for union among the younger women that this excursion into the past aroused little interest the election of the president of the merged organizations was the most difficult hurdle lucy stone suggested that neither she mrs stanton nor susan allow their names to be proposed since they had been blamed for the division but this was easier said than done the clamor for susan and mrs stanton was so strong and continuous among the younger members that it soon became apparent that unless one or the other were chosen there would be no hope of union the odds were in susan's favor her popularity in the national association was tremendous although mrs stanton was revered as the mother of woman's suffrage and admired for her brilliant mind and her poise as presiding officer she now spent so much time in europe with her daughter harriet that many who might otherwise have voted for her felt that the office should go to susan who was always on the job most of the American Association regarded Susan as safer and less radical than Mrs. Stanton, less likely to stray from the straight path of women's suffrage, and Henry Blackwell recommended her election. Susan did not want the presidency. She wanted it for Mrs. Stanton, who had headed the National Association so ably for so many years she pleaded earnestly with the delegates of the national association i will say to every woman who is a national and who has any love for the old association or for susan b anthony that i hope you will not vote for her for president don't you vote for any human being but mrs stanton when the division was made twenty-two years ago it was because our platform was too broad, because Mrs. Stanton was too radical, and now, if Mrs. Stanton shall be deposed, you virtually degrade her. I want our platform to be kept broad enough for the infidel, the atheist, the Mohammedan, or the Christian. These are the broad principles I want you to stand upon. 
when the two organizations met in february eighteen ninety to effect formal union as the national american women's suffrage association elizabeth cady stanton was elected president by a majority of forty-one votes while susan was the almost unanimous choice for vice president at large with lucy stone chosen chairman of the executive committee jane spofford treasurer and rachel foster and alice stone blackwell secretaries the new organization was well equipped with able leaders for the work ahead it was dedicated to work for both state and federal women's suffrage amendments and its official organ would be the woman's journal susan now faced the future with gratitude that a strong unified organization could be handed down to the younger women who would gradually take over the work she had started and her confidence in these young women grew day by day working closely with rachel foster and may wright sewell she knew their caliber anna howard shaw and alice stone blackwell showed great promise and Harriet Stanton Blatch was living up to her expectations. In England, where Harriet had made her home since her marriage in 1882, she was active in the cause, and on her visits to her mother in New York, she kept in touch with the suffrage movement in the United States. She took part in the union meeting, and in her diary, Susan recorded these words of commendation harriet said but a few words yet showed herself worthy of her mother and her mother's lifelong friend and co-worker it was a proud moment for me to such she could entrust her beloved cause End of chapter twenty one